Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. I'm Anthony Buzzard, inviting you again to spend some minutes searching the Scriptures as we continue to investigate Jesus' favorite topic, the gospel or good news about the kingdom of God. I think that many Christians have not fully realized that Jesus was a saving teacher. Not only did he die for the sins of the world so that we could be forgiven and reconciled to God, but he preached and taught the gospel, the saving gospel. He came into the world to save sinners, Paul said in 1 Timothy 1. And Jesus came seeking the lost. But he did it by preaching a message, a gospel. God has chosen, Paul said on one occasion, to save the world by the foolishness. That's in quotes, of course, what some people consider foolishness. God has chosen to save the world by the foolishness of preaching, not only dying on a cross and being raised from the dead, but by preaching Jesus offered salvation. And Jesus, according to Hebrews 2 and verse 3, was the originator of the gospel message. He's the one, however, who came confirming a message that had been given in advance to Abraham. Galatians 3 and verse 8 states quite clearly that the Christian gospel had been preached in advance to the patriarchs, to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Those people, by the way, are the real church fathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. In Romans 15 and verse 8, Paul said explicitly that the gospel had been preached by Jesus as a confirmation of the promises made to Abraham. Do you see then that the Christian gospel, Jesus' teaching and Paul's teaching, and the teaching of all the apostles who were united with the same message, all of that teaching is solidly based on that 77% of our Bible, which we call the Old Testament, and which we really should call the Hebrew Bible. Jesus said that he did not come to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them, to confirm them, to build his message upon them. You see, Jesus was the promised seed made to Abraham. That's stated clearly in Galatians 3 and verse 16. Paul there alludes to the verse in Genesis where God promised that he would give the land to the seed of Abraham. And Paul points out that that seed was in fact Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the singular seed to whom the promises were made. But remember, of course, that the great land promise, the promise of land in perpetuity, was made not only to Abraham and Jesus, but it's made also to you. If you're a Christian, Paul said with equal clarity in Galatians 3.29, then you're reckoned as the seed of Abraham. You count as a descendant of Abraham. Abraham becomes your father. Indeed, he's called the father of the faithful in Romans chapter 4 and verse 11. Let me read you that verse exactly to make my point. It's essential that Christians should be linked to Abraham in their faith. It's by being linked to Abraham that they're going to be linked to Christ, because Christ was the recipient of the great promises made to Abraham. In Romans 4.11, Paul says that Abraham is the father of all who believe. That's to say, Abraham is the father of all the Christians. The believers, as we know in the Bible, are the Christians. And in Romans 4, verse 12, Paul adds this, Abraham is the father of all those who follow in the steps of the faith of our father, Abraham. And what was that faith of Abraham? Well, it was the fact that Abraham believed what God said. When God stated his intention, his purpose to the patriarch Abraham, Abraham actually believed 
without questioning, without doubting, and sometimes against all natural circumstances, Abraham was prepared to believe the revealed word of God. And what was that revealed promise or word? Well, Paul stated it clearly in Romans 4 verse 13. The promise to Abraham and to his seed was that he would be heir of the world. That's to say, Abraham was guaranteed a possession, an inheritance in perpetuity of the entirety of the world. And this is what caused Abraham to be reckoned as righteous before God. And that very same promise is now extended to Jew and Gentile alike, who believe in Christ as the promised seed, and who believe also in the promise of the world or the land forever. All of those who have that faith of Abraham, Paul says, in Romans 4.16, are of the faith of Abraham, and he's the father of us all. It's strange that Christians do not spend more time considering their heritage in Abraham, their Jewish heritage, if you like, the basis, in fact, of all the great promises which are fulfilled in Christ and will be fulfilled in Christ when he returns to this earth to establish the kingdom and cause his followers to inherit the earth. You see, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob never inherited the promises. That's plainly stated in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, and Hebrews chapter 11, verse 39. The patriarchs and the faithful of the Old Testament times died in faith, as verses say, without having received the promises which God had made to them. And the purpose of that was that they would not be made perfect, as Hebrews 11.40 says, they would not come to perfection apart from us. The story is a simple one. We're all going to be resurrected at the last trumpet. That's at the end of the tribulation. The great resurrection of all the faithful will occur. Let me say to you in passing that there's no such thing as a pre-tribulation resurrection in the Bible. There's only one resurrection of the faithful, and it occurs at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. It's called the first resurrection in Revelation 20 and verse 5. At that first resurrection, the dead will come alive. They will arise from the sleep of death to take part in their inheritance to possess the earth. Blessed are the meek, Jesus said, they're going to inherit the land or the earth, and they're going to rule as kings in the land or on the earth. Revelation 5, verse 10. You see, Jesus confirmed the great land promise made to Abraham. To Abraham and his seed, the land was promised forever. Jesus came preaching that he was that promised seed and that he was also the recipient of the land promise. And so he invited his followers, if they are meek, to inherit the land. Blessed are the meek, Jesus said. They're going to have the land as their possession. Matthew 5, 5. Do you see that in that wonderful verse, Jesus was confirming the great promise of the land made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, made to David, made to all the prophets, and indeed to all the faithful in Israel. They, along with all the Gentiles who have believed in the great promises of God, will also inherit the land with Jesus. At present, as Paul said in Romans chapter 8, we are co-heirs of Jesus. That's to say we're destined to inherit the age to come of the kingdom, the inhabited earth to come, of which Hebrews 2 and verse 5 speaks. That's the destiny of the Christian, in fact, to have a hand with Jesus, to have a part in restoring this earth to the condition that it was intended for in the first place. God is working a great restoration program in the earth, and he's a kingmaker, 
He's inviting us, based on his great promises and contracts and covenants made with Abraham, to take part in the restoration of sound government on this earth. This will not happen until Jesus comes back. It's impossible now to reform the evil systems of our present age. That's impossible apart from the very presence of Jesus back in Jerusalem, as he will be at his second coming. Do you remember the very first promise made about Jesus, even before he was born? Gabriel came to Mary and said that the Lord God would give him the throne of his father David, and he's going to rule over the people of Israel forever. You see, there's the royal element in the Davidic and Abrahamic promises. Even at the time of Abraham, he was promised that kings would come from him, and Sarah also, the wife of Abraham, who conceived a child long after the age of childbearing, she was promised that kings would come from her also. And when we come to the story of David a thousand years later, we find a great promise of a perpetual dynasty given to King David. Jesus, of course, was of the line of David, a direct descendant of David, and also of Abraham. And he's the one to whom this great promise of a kingdom and a land in perpetuity was given. Jesus generously shares that kingdom and will share that land with all those who believe and put their trust in him and in his precious message and to obey his laws as given in the Sermon on the Mount. Not, I may say, the laws of Moses. Some Christians are confused as between the law of Moses and the law of Christ. Christians certainly are bound by the law of Christ, the laws of love, the laws of non-retaliation and so on given in the Sermon on the Mount, but they're not bound by some of those laws given to Moses and given to Israel. The issue, for instance, of Sabbath-keeping, whether it's necessary to rest on Saturday and not work is a non-issue or should be for Christians. Paul in Colossians 2.16 stated with absolute clarity that the Sabbath keeping weekly, monthly and annually the feasts, that's to say, the new moons and the weekly Sabbath they are a shadow collectively the whole thing taken as one unit they, all of these observances are a shadow and the substance is Christ Christ is our Passover. That's why we don't have to celebrate the Passover as such. What we as Christians do observe, of course, is the Lord's Supper, which is kept when Christians gather together. A fellowship meal and the breaking of bread and the drinking of a little wine constitutes the new form of observance under the Christian dispensation. But Sabbath-keeping, as resting on Saturday, is denied by Paul in Colossians 2 and verse 16 in other places. A certain amount of misunderstanding has arisen on this issue. I sometimes hear it said that Constantine, the 4th century Roman emperor, was the first person to insist on resting on Sunday for Christians. But that's not true to the facts of history. If you read earlier Christian writers in the 2nd century, for example, you'll find that they too were resting on Sunday as being a celebration of the day of the resurrection of Jesus. It's appropriate that the Christians would celebrate the resurrection of Christ on the day in which he rose from the dead. And so Sunday keeping is not a transferred Sabbath. It's not a mandatory rest day, but it's a day in which traditionally Christians have got together to celebrate the great fact that Jesus came alive from death and now sits at the right hand of the Father, pending his return to rule the kingdom of God for a thousand years and thereafter into the ages of the ages. Let me summarize my findings. 
The Bible is a unified book. It speaks of the great drama being worked out here on the earth as God prepares a kingdom. God is constantly at work using his various agents and supremely his final agent, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, to invite people into the kingdom program. Jesus came preaching the gospel or good news about the kingdom of God. It was only when people believed in the gospel of the kingdom in the name of Jesus Christ that they were ready to be baptized in New Testament times. Acts 8 and verse 12. Paul constantly preached the very same gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom is the ultimate objective of world history. Jesus will come back to rule on this earth for a thousand years. That millennial rule of Christ will be the rule of both Christ and the saints together. The faithful of all the ages will come to life in resurrection, according to Revelation 20, verse 5. And at that point, they will begin to reign with the Messiah during that millennial kingdom. At that time, there will be mortals surviving, and they will be supervised by the immortalized saints. Jesus already reappeared as an immortal person after his resurrection, and he was able to walk and talk and eat and drink with mortals. That's an example of the situation as it will be in the thousand-year reign when immortalized Christians will govern with Jesus and supervise a surviving mortal population. During that wonderful rule of the Messiah and his saints on the earth, the earth will be restored to a condition as it was at the beginning. There will be international disarmament. There will be widespread knowledge of God. In fact, to the extent that the waters cover the sea, Isaiah says, so the knowledge of God will permeate the entire globe. Our time is running out for today. We invite you to request from us our free book on the kingdom. Join us again for our continued discussion of Jesus' favorite topic, the gospel about the kingdom of God.